Welcome to Everybody Hates Me, Let's Talk About Stigma, a podcast hosted by Dr. Carmen Logie. She's a Canada Research Chair in Global Health Equity and Social Justice with Marginalized Populations and an Associate Professor at the University of Toronto's Factor in Wintosh Faculty of Social Work. Every week, the show features amazing speakers from around the world talking about stigma from research, lived experiences, and activism perspectives. Why should we care about stigma? What can we do about it? Thank you for tuning in. Let's start the show. Listeners, I am so excited to meet and to introduce our guest speaker today. Her name is Dr. Nitika Pontpai. She is an associate professor at McGill University's Department of Medicine, Division of Clinical Epidemiology, and she's also a physician scientist at the McGill University Health Center Research Institute. She is a member of the Royal Society of Canada and has been working in the diagnosis space for and diagnostic space for 20 years. Her global implementation research program in diagnostics is focused on diagnostics for HIV and associated co-infections, um, hepatitis C, hepatitis B, HPV, and bacterial sexually transmitted infections using point of care diagnostics. And her work informs domestic and global policy on point of care diagnostics for HIV and other sexually transmitted and bloodborne infections. And she has experience doing research in four countries and health systems, including the United States, Canada, South Africa, and India. Welcome, Dr. Pai. How are you doing today? Thank you. I'm good. I'm good in keeping my mojo alive. <laughs> <laughs> in these never-ending lockdown days, right? Never-ending. <laughs> At least spring is here. I'm feeling that that's useful, right? Yeah. It's a useful... We have a magnolia tree and it's fully blue. Oh, now, so. love them. Love them. <laughs> so, Beautiful. I'm so excited to meet you. I've never met you before mm-hmm. and your work is just so exciting and so interesting to me. I'm wondering if we're in an elevator, what is your... And we're going up a couple floors. <laughs> and I know you know an elevator pitch because you've probably been in thousands of elevators pre-COVID, probably maybe less so during COVID. Um, I don't know. If you're in a hospital, you're probably still going up without elevators. What, what, what do you do when people are asking you? Like, what do you do? How do you describe that just to a person in an elevator, a stranger? So I am a clinical epidemiologist and a physician by training. And everybody understands epidemiology thanks to the pandemic. <laughs> you won't confuse me with a dermatologist. Thank you. <laughs> and over the past uh, 20 years, I've combined my training as a clinician, as an epidemiologist, um, to really develop different diagnostic strategies to serve the access and screening needs of populations worldwide. So that's basically what I do. And in doing so, I have to do a lot of crosstalk with different domains like, you know, the, the digital science, the diagnostics, the, the artificial intelligence, a development of solutions. And of course, you know, classic plain vanilla science, which is the science of uh, HIV, of hepatitis and of all of these STBBIs, sexually transmitted bloodborne infections. I hope that's under two minutes. <laughs> You're, you sound, I'd be like, 
Whoa, you sound really busy. <laughs> uh, and that's a lot. So I want to know, I'm going to, are you in Montreal right now? Yes. I love Montreal. I'm going to show up. And actually, the next time I show up, I actually would love to absolutely. in real life. But say I'm going to show up at your house. We'll ha- absolutely. You have to. In your backyard. Yes. I- I'm there right now. I'm there with my time machine. <laughs> and there's space for us to physically distance in the in the time machine. And I'm going to say, take me back to when you thought, I want to look at point of care diagnostics. Where would you go? Oh, wow. Amazing. So I was completely in the clinic, clinical space, if I can use that term. Uh, when I was in my home country, India, I was totally into and I was training in surgery of, of all specialties. And then when I got a chance to move to US, I actually started rethinking whether I wanted to do that for the next 20 years of my life. And the idea was my, you know, even though I'm a scientist and I should use my left brain to drive all the logic decisions, I actually use my gut, which is my intuition (laughs) to guide all these decisions because I had lots of opportunities to do many different kinds of things. But then time and again, it kind of uh, appeared to me that I had to really listen to my gut and do something that is that I've been wanting to do for a long time that is that wasn't very fancy in my country nor sexy as in public health women's health and so um but there wasn't you know there isn't a lot of now thanks to the pandemic you know things are more uh, sexier if I can use that term in <laughs> to work in public health but it isn't a great uh, it, it isn't well remunerated so I, and, and so it wasn't very exciting and you can work in public health in many different you know you can wear different hats and work but my my frustration in surgery was that it was very protocol driven mm. and I I'm a creator I love to create things I have a very dominant right brain Mm -hmm. so I was thinking okay maybe in plastic surgery I can craft a new nose but that didn't happen (laughs) (laughs) I could think of so I was thinking of out of the box solution while assisting and it 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 occurred to me that uh, it would not sustain me for the next 20 years intellectually and emotionally and that was kind of like and thankfully I was at Berkeley and uh, I was married um, and and it was a different kind of you know at that time because you know when you Berkeley is so cool can I just say Exactly. There's like a Thai temple that has brunch on Sundays. I don't know if you ever. Oh man, I. I yes. Oh, I yes. love Berkeley. I've been there. So cool. Yes, and Berkeley was a place to accommodate people like me. Who, I mean, we call it sometimes, you know, you can go berserk in Berkeley. <laughs> <laughs> you can be yourself. So I got a chance to revisit my life. And in doing so, I interviewed um, some of the professors who were there and I asked them as to what they were doing. And most of them had started their lives uh, training clinically and then they had transitioned to public health. And so that's what I thought that it was possible. And so armed by their life stories and, you know, inspired by their life stories and armed with that, you know, confidence, I, I, I didn't have any confidence issues, but, you know, like transitioning from a very clinical space, which is remuneration driven to a space which will be uh, okay, you will have a good life, but you will be able to pursue your passion. Mm-hmm. And that was what I wanted to do. So that was the transition I made. And in doing so, I was lucky that, you know, I was lucky to get the Fogarty Fellowship that allowed me to do the master and I'm very grateful to my supervisor, Dr. Artrain Gold and Jack Olford that really spotted that talent in me. And then they said, oh, you should do a PhD. And I'm like, PhD? 
Come on. Wasn't it enough to get an MD? I don't think I want to do a PhD. One PhD is enough in the family. Um, but then I realized that my learning was not over. And that's when I transitioned to, you know, like when you realize that you are actually a depth learner and that you really need to pick up more skills as skill sets. And that's when I transitioned and I said, okay, fine, I'll do this too. So it just, I just have an open mind and that I think I, I was lucky. So that's how as, as part of my PhD dissertation, I was toying with a couple of ideas at that time. It just, I was drawn to HIV because I was also doing um, clinical training with... Um, was that still in Berkeley for your PhD? Those, yes, yes, yes. I, I'm following you in this time machine. I just want to make sure I have the right, the right locations. <laughs> the time machine, yes. It was PhD at Berkeley. And then I met uh, Jackie Tulsky, who was a professor at San Francisco General Hospital. And, and there, you know, I got a chance to, through her, I got a chance to look at um, HIV treatment interruptions, which was a hot topic at that time, in inmates of San Francisco County Jail. And so I explored that and that was a part of my dissertation. And, and in addition to that, I wanted to do something. I always wanted to keep that connect because I never wanted to move out of my country. You know, I was very happy. I belonged to mm-hmm. an upper middle class family, always happy. In <laughs> but so it was a very tough decision for me to get out of that cocoon. And so I wanted to keep that connect and thankfully had the opportunity to forget to do projects in my home country. And that's where I, it, it just didn't make sense because at that time treatment was not available consistently to everybody. Mm-hmm. And so diagnostics was one of the spaces that was completely, you know, nascent and naive and things were just taking off. And that's how I got into doing point of care diagnostics. It gives it gave me also an opportunity to try out new things because, you know, there's there was a lot of latitude in how you could devise new things. So that was the I love this. So I feel like the time machine starts in India. Whereabouts in India? Are you from or in North India? North India. I'm from the city called Allahabad that has given many intellectuals, prime ministers, and including our a famous, uh, you know, biggest brand ambassador in Bollywood called Amitabh Bachchan, if you follow Bollywood movies. Ah, yeah. I, I did my PhD research in South India, so I, I, I don't, I don't know, you're... North India is crazy. No, North India is crazy. So, so we start off there and go to Berkeley and then kind of go back there. It seems like part of your yeah. journey has been to keep a foot in, Always. in where, yeah. In my roots, because I'm, I was raised by a very, my, I come from a family of intellectuals and lawyers. So my father always gave us strong roots and wings. Ah. And so the, the, he always said, I've given you roots and now you take the wings and fly. And so inside my house, you know, it was, you know, we could engage in everything. But outside my house, like there was no gender bias, nothing. We were raised like boys and, you know, it was a completely liberal educational environment where you could argue, you could talk, you <laughs> <laughs> that serves you well in academia, right? <laughs> oh, yes, absolutely. But then when you step out of the house and of, of your socioeconomic status, you would realize, oh, my God, you know, there's so much of this thing called patriarchy. <laughs> still here. <laughs> still here. <laughs> you have to face that. So I hated it. And because of the fact that I wasn't really, my, my wings were never clipped. They were never clipped. My dad never clipped them. My mom never clipped them. And so I think that kind of, sometimes people find it hard to take that from me. And I say, well, I was raised by a very liberal parents who were educated and, you know, I was privileged. So, mm. I mean, they could dare, dare clip my wings. So <laughs> That's awesome. 
<laughs> I love that that you come from that space where you don't, you know, when I think of someone who doesn't have or a bird without clipped wings, it means they can really go anywhere they want, right? They, their journey is kind of not bound by exactly exactly limitations i know and that's 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 actually that's the way all women should be raised all girls should be raised i mean i don't know whether that's a recipe for disaster <laughs> i think that it could be more disastrous than honestly the way the current inequalities in the world are <laughs> exactly and you know, like when my father was asked, when he was a lawyer, he was asked, oh, uh, his nickname was Panther. Panther, aren't you, aren't you saving money to marry? He, has, he had two daughters and a son. Aren't you saving money to marry off your daughters? And he said, my daughters marrying them off? No way. They're going to, they're going to have their careers and they're going to chart their own lives. He would never think along, you know, the traditional routes, even people from upper middle class families, they do this, right? They save money for dowry and all that. To me, that was the most offensive word in my dictionary. So when I met my future husband, who was married to her, I actually negotiated. I told him I'm an ambitious Indian woman and uh, I marriage was never on my cards. It, and if you really want to marry me, you got to wait for me because I'm not going to give up my dreams for a man. I love this. You're like... Well, you can just have the whole podcast on this. I, I, you know what? What is really interesting? I think you can edit this, probably. No, I mean, unless you, unless you want to hide this amazing liberatory journey from the world, because I, I do think we need to hear more about the personalities behind the science. Totally, the personalities behind the science, but also that there's heterogeneity in experiences, even among exactly. women in in contexts that are often stereotyped right. as as being one thing, maybe patriarchal. For instance, in your, I really love those examples of, yeah. you know, the alternative stories that mm -hmm. we might not always hear either in the media or or elsewhere, where where there are people actually challenging patriarchy and sure. and advocating for women's rights. Because I, I think there, there's always, I always tell my students, like, wherever there's oppression, there is resistance. And like, you just have to look for it. And you just saw that in your own household, right? You're like, yeah. And also my mom, like, you know, she was given all the freedom to kind of uh, be whatever she wanted to be. So my grandfather, who was a lawyer, had a phenomenal reputation in the city and in the country. He asked my mother to become a lawyer. I mean, who does that? <laughs> Which which father-in-law would ask a daughter-in-law get into law? Oh, that is that is amazing. <laughs> so I know. So it's just liberal parents, and I'm so proud of all my cousins and brothers, and all of them are just such liberal, you know, such well-grounded individuals who give that space to their wives, and I see that, and I'm so proud of that. You know, I know, I know. Maybe I'm biased. My daughter says, "Mama, you." came from privilege, don't talk about yourself. I'm like, you know, and I always sometimes feel that I wish everybody could be given that kind of space or negotiate that space. We would have more productive women in society. We wouldn't have what we are facing today. We wouldn't have those self-esteem issues. I mean, even in the community I come from, women are so educated. I grew up with such phenomenal female role models everywhere that I, you know, the problem was when I stepped out and I saw the, 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 the lives of people who were not privileged, it was a root shock to me. And that's when I I decided to do something about mm. it That's, because I was so so like protected you know in my own cocoon I'm so excited to learn about about your journey I want to talk to you about diagnostics because it's really interesting that we haven't specifically talked about diagnostics on the podcast yet and myself I'm new 
ish, just been a few years working on HIV self-testing, but I've been in the HIV testing space for a little while. But I, right. I'm actually like been thinking and writing also about how when we give people a range of ways to engage with health systems, such as point yes. of care or self-testing, yes. we might be able to circumnavigate some experiences of stigma. And and I, I really want to kind of talk to you about your experience about diagnostics. And you mentioned earlier before we were recording about elephant, the elephants in the room or something like this. So absolutely. So why don't you talk to the the listeners who are from all different yeah. kind of spaces and places about about what does diagnostics have to do with stigma? Absolutely. Well, it is the art and science on which medicine rests. If you don't like, I think people in the pandemic situation, they can understand it really well. There are asymptomatics that are responsible for a vast majority of transmissions in the context of COVID-19. And if some of those, and in, in like in the, um, in settings that are cluster, that are in closed spaces, if we could take some of these rapid tests and screen people, we would actually get a true assessment of the disease burden in these communities and in workspace. Mm. So basically, if you so diagnosis is probably, you know, at a very philosophical level, it takes you from the unknown to the known and it allows you to to act from there. And it's like and it's kind of like a tool. It can be a tool. It can be a process. It can be a journey that allows you to navigate your um, condition, your disease condition and allows you to navigate and engage with the healthcare system. If you don't know what you have, you're never going to get into the care system. And it also helps helps you. It basically early diagnosis defines your trajectory and timely diagnosis of any condition, whether it's cancer or a serious disease like cancer or um, COVID-19 or a chronic condition or HIV, a stigmatizing, uh, considered a stigmatizing disease. You know, it makes that fundamental difference in navigating your pathway and your journey in a disease and getting a better outcome. If you don't know, then how can you, you know, being aware who you of what you have is the first step and diagnosis is just that it basically is the process of finding out what you have with tools and services and tests that we have available i'm mean, to simplify it a lot more um and and really take you from that unknown to the known and then you know it has and that stigma is a barrier like stigma is the elephant room stigma is the elephant in the room right now we're we're doing point of care testing as part of a a study in with with urban refugee youth in Kampala and right. the fear between this the time of the point of care test and the result yeah people are like I kind of don't even want to have the test because they're afraid of the result how do you how do you navigate that because you work i mean across i mean hepatitis C hepatitis B HPV other STIs like HIV different settings how does stigma show up in your work so I'll start with what happened with the first testing initiative that I did in rural India, which was a part of and how I kind of hit this elephant in the room. So um, we designed a study to kind of look at the accuracy of the oral test like 20 years ago when these oral tests were just the only agency I think that was evaluating it was CDC. And there were very few studies in the space and people didn't even know whether these oral point of care tests, rapid tests for HIV, which became self-tests, were good enough. Mm. So we tested it out in 
in this in this hospital in western india called sevagram which is where mahatma gandhi started his um you know non violence movement so it's a very inspiring place so i went to that wow. ashram to really get inspired I'm like wow if gandhi could do it like years ago of course we can do it in this space <laughs> and there's so many inspirational public health figures in that hospital who live a gandhian who have a gandhian philosophy you know at the very core and practice that that integrity and that self service every day of their lives as physicians i mean that place completely transformed the way i was looking at life because i was in this whole you know become a doctor get a clinical you know get into the clinical faculty specialty train and then you know serve people at the same time um you know have a comfortable life which is for most doctors and most of us you know when you're young that's what you want to get settled and do that i did want to do public health i had no idea as to how i could make that happen so that testing initiative can i yes. can i just ask you cuz i don't know if everybody knows how do you describe a gandhian philosophy so there are so many components to it I'm, i think i would be uh, a newbie in kind of trying to explain that because people who um so gandhi says be the change you wish to be right and he through his um so he came from a very uh, from an affluent background he trained and educated as a lawyer but when he went to south africa and he experienced you know racism at the hands of at the hands of the you know the dominant majority community he he realized that he needed to do something about it and then he came back to india and he completely gave up what he was doing to he he went to a rural india and he started and he realized that you know through his journey he he made so many so many sacrifices but it was they were they were deliberate sacrifices where he wanted to to understand himself and he wanted to also experience with the truth and if and that led him to really uh, fundamentally create so many powerful movements like the satyagraha movement you know and the the non violent movement the, you know the philosophy of ahimsa the philosophy of do no harm but there's so many parallels with medicine that you can draw with that and the whole thing about integrity compassion living your life with principles mm. being the change in your microcosm that's that's so much in tune with his his philosophy it's it's, it's a big you know his whole there are so many elements to it that i i think we need another podcast to talk about yeah, no, him alone because he's such an inspirational figure <laughs> and also like all of that philosophy seems very much aligned with reducing stigma and discrimination too right absolutely and it actually you know it's it's not that those philosophies were not in my home while i was growing up you know being doing your work being excellent in your space in your profession and always never compromise on your integrity i mean those were mantras that were just drilled down to us so so just getting um and to to meet some of these inspiring figures and physicians who are actually have created insurance schemes for villagers and stuff like that that was is a phenomenal kind of a 360 degree shift for me and that's when i realized that whatever i'll do i will never let go of something um that generates social impact mm. so much much of my research always tries to have that angle and i try to weave it in which is not pure research in the true sense of the word but you know i do my methods and all of that but that's where the entrepreneurship bug you know stung me 10 years ago and i started saying okay you know i will do these uh, these projects and i will uh, you know design good studies and i'll get my Uh, you know the whole research field that we have but i want to do something more and that's when mm. i came up with solutions that could actually be used in real life to influence and impact change and that's how i transcended from being <laughs> just uh, you know a, a, a scientist and a physician to being an entrepreneur which is like yeah which is more of a disruptor 
So I love to do that. That's the part that that gives me. I think that's my ekigai. <laughs> that's like really exciting because I I saw that、um, you have a very long biography. So listeners, I only like read the first paragraph, but at the very end, it does say you have a social impact company or you started or something like this, right? It's a nonprofit. It's funded by the government of Canada. It's it's the the impact initiative is is to you know use all these solutions and innovations that we have to for the greater good of mankind. And the the bottom line is to touch as many lives as possible. In in that process too, that's a whole another podcast as to how you transition. <laughs> you you're already invited back. Don't worry, we'll have a series with you. <laughs> how you transition from you know a scientist to an entrepreneur and、ah. what roadblocks do you face? Most of my colleagues have been. Asking me to talk about it, I've been keeping it all bottled up. I think it's a challenge in, in when you're trying to navigate different spaces and you're trying to do that. But now I think I've hit upon a solution. Maybe give me three months and、okay. let me launch solution to, to kind of take these solutions to space because you know the core of it all is. I always think about whenever I design anything, design or come up with a initiative with with rapid testing or diagnostics or or linked treatment services. I always think of the person who's not in my position, like completely somebody on the street. Like if you have a prototype common person, common man or common woman on the street who does not have any of the resources that we are accustomed to, and how are they trying to navigate their Care pathways in their spaces. Once I put myself in their shoes and I talk to them, I kind of understand. You know, how do we need to do this? We backtrack and and then you like the the, the elephant in the room is、mm-hmm. stigma for HIV,、yeah. especially if it comes to diagnostics. But there are also other roadblocks. You know, there are just just man-made control issues between seeking care from one clinic to another, and and the ball often gets dropped. So part of my reason sometimes I take a longer time to launch projects because I'm really trying to make sure that the least common denominator in my study gets linked to care, doesn't get dropped. And that's、um, been the fundamental inspiration, and I don't think it's it's ever going to change. <laughs> that's that's amazing. I'm I'm so excited to be meeting you. So I want to、oh. know when people are maybe listening who are focused on diagnostics, what do you have to share with them about why stigma still matters for for people engaging with them, or if there's some you know maybe it just point of care or self testing in your experience. Sure. Change. I think change experiences. They, Of stigma, maybe maybe reduce it in some ways, or、yeah. what would、yeah. you want the listeners to know? I think、um, it is important to understand that it impacts the overall psyche of an individual. It affects the way they engage. It affects their well-being. It affects their performance. It 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 and stigma is rooted in basically ignorance. And lack of knowledge, and also it's also rooted in judgment. You know, we exercise judgment all the time, and that affects somebody who's dealing. That affects the individual who's dealing with self-stigma, which I thought was a bigger issue in in my space in HIV, where people self-stigmatize themselves, and kind of like the two diseases that are very deeply impacted by stigma, HIV and TB. I didn't see a lot of that with hepatitis C. I didn't feel a lot of that with HPV,、um, and then of course mental health, which kind. Of intersects both HIV and TB, and a lot of people with HIV have mental health issues. A lot of TB with people with TB have mental health issues, and as you know, it can be very, very well contextualized in the context of mental health, where people、um, it leads to hopelessness, it leads to you know loss of confidence, it leads to inferiority, and it impacts care. It impacts diagnostics because it impacts engagement in care. 
and that's where the story begins and then it impacts you know um, the judgment prevents people from seeking care in certain clinics which is what i faced mm-hmm. in south africa when i spoke to my um, you know people who were going to participate in the project and they they had their stories i don't want to come back to this clinic so it's got nothing to do with oftentimes we think that as doctors and as scientists and we have this vaccine so everybody should take it this is the best way possible this is the recommendation this is the <laughs> this is the principle this is the proselytizing this is that blah 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 a common person on the street um does not understand what you are really trying to tell them so this is the test that you should take this is the test that you should have this <laughs> they are basically trying to just get up from the bed if they are depressed mm-hmm. to actually take that pill that you prescribed them so sometimes it is um it's not just the biomedical that we have unfortunately biomedical digital and products and services are all that we have there's that whole navigating their own space I love that that you mentioned that because a lot of times what I've maybe you want to do this what I've been doing on this podcast in many examples to kind of make it more real for listeners is saying like what is the day in the life you know of 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 getting that test it depends you know where you're sleeping that night and how much food you've had to eat. eat and what transportation money and what's the color of your skin or your exactly. income level or your clothing that you're able to afford exactly. that, that determines how you're treated like when you leave your house right if you have a house to leave <laughs> so there's you know the day in the life of like getting a test or taking a pill is is so complex it's not just you know I mean so many people I don't know if you get this question maybe not because you're doing diagnostics mm-hmm. but a lot of times when I say I do HIV work people just say to me and this is like cross colors why don't people just use condoms it's like people's favorite thing to and I, I mean I love talking about yeah. sex sexual health prevention I can do it all day and I'm just like that's actually like it's like a negotiation it, it's it happens in a context of a of a yeah a relationship or at least in an encounter it's it's got to do with power and social dynamics so like, just like just use a condom exactly. is not so simple and it, it's so i feel yeah. like it's yeah. what you're saying is just get a test or just get a pill is maybe similarly not simple and this kind of you know stigma in the room stigma is the elephant in the room stigma may be relevant like it may be very very relevant for certain diseases and for some diseases it works in the background mm. it's like you know there is self perceived stigma some people internalize the fact that they um they they have this whole thing about like maybe because of their orientation because of the color of their skin because they have all, all of those things that prevents them from actually having a healthy conversation with their provider in the first place mm-hmm. i mean forget about care and medication and we sometimes you know because we cannot deal with that whole we call it the socio what's it called the social determinants of health or mm-hmm. the socio economic context that patients come from or uh, the uh, sometimes we just kind of say okay we cannot deal with it because we cannot really because we're not trained to deal with it in medical schools or in graduate schools mm-hmm. they we only talking about it and that sometimes impedes the care giving and care seeking behaviors more than you know the in and of itself you know the the medication or the test i agree with you i think that uh, something we've been talking about a little bit on the podcast and i've been writing a little bit about is about epistemologies of ignorance so ignorance is not innocent so there's a reason why uh people might not know about 
a history of colonization, say, of Indigenous people or might not know about LGBTQ health issues is because that knowledge hasn't been shared in an equitable manner with people. And so the reason that maybe doctors might not know how to address the social terms of health was that wasn't considered important enough to teach or to train. There's still one day, I think, on LGBT health issues, one day of training an entire medical medical degree. Exactly. No, it's important because we like like I would share with you that I uh, the first rural uh, testing initiative that I did in rural India on point of care. The one of the first few. Uh, so so all our doctors were very inspired to 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 do the project. But the first few <laughs> patients that we actually picked up was a priest, a Hindu priest who was diagnosed positive, and he was really uh, he was quite scared because he didn't want people to know that he was HIV positive. So it was that like I said, we navigated stigma. We figured out a way to you know keep it all confidential but what I was what I'm trying to say here is you know how not knowing from not knowing to knowing you you use a tool that kind of mm. it kind of opens up a Pandora's box and then we said oh wow you know how many more people can we get like that so we got a lot of businessmen in the neighborhood and a lot of people who probably were never tested and they came to know of their status and then they then began their journey of uh, you know getting seeking medications some could afford it some could not afford it there were you know programs in place but that's that's where I figured like that guy was so scared about his status mm-hmm. because of the nature of stigma associated with HIV. Then there was other, um, in the same hospital when I was going around the wards, I was talking to these women and some of the pregnant women said, why aren't you doing a project for us? So I'm like, <laughs> you know, like I was like, she's really challenging. Why do you need it? So she said, well, I know my husband works in Mumbai and I know that he has affairs with sex workers there. And uh, I know that he's only going to show up and I'm going to deliver. And so I never, uh, I, I will never like my and my friend is also in the same situation and she's never going to get screened for HIV. So why aren't you doing it in us? And that really just struck me so bad. I thought about it the entire night. I'm like, I've got to do the next project. I've got to find out what the problem is. And we did another big project on testing around the clock, testing pregnant women in labor. 50% of them, you know, show up with no status. They show up only in labor because they're living in the villages. So just adapting and, you know, changing the project to suit the circumstance and the context has been one of my and through your podcast, I'm actually kind of contextualizing it through a different prism because it's always been the what, right, in our space. It's always, okay, we did this, blah, blah, blah. We found this. We did it well. We got published, you know. And, you know, it's always that kind of a, a talk rather than, you know, what is it that you actually addressed? So we did address the, sti- the stigma of not seeking care. And then these women came with their mother-in-laws and their husbands and, and they wanted to negotiate. Um, they partner notification was an important feature, but it was done in the presence of a doctor. And some of the partners were, of course, resistant to, to get a, an HIV test, but the doctors were able to get it for some of them, not all of them. So again, the, the, the elephant in the room was stigma. Yeah, and, and not just one kind of stigma. So, you know, the intersecting stigma, maybe based on gender um, and shame, r- being in a rural area versus yeah. an urban area, so having less access, and then the stigma on HIV. Could you talk a bit more? Because it's something that I'm just, you know, we have one podcast that's going to be on TV stigma, but we really haven't explored it very much. What, what have you noticed? Because you did mention that there was stigma around TB. 
Yes, so I don't do a lot of TV work for simple reason that I have a TV researcher in the house. <laughs> and i leave that to him and i think it the from my experiences with with the patients that i've spoken to and the experiences i think it's there's a lot of shame because tb is considered a disease of poverty mm-hmm. and so people who are affluent especially in in the context like in india and in south africa people who are affluent if they get tb there's a lot of shame in talking about it because of the fact that it's so kind of rooted in um deprivation so that kind of stigma of not talking about it and then uh, like in the past in hiv when people just talked about their status um they would never get jobs right because there was so much of shame associated with it mm. and there've been movies yeah. made about this and so intersectionalities of tb yeah. are like you know if people could actually do you know very well designed um, surveys and they would be able to find how you know the bacteria kind of traverses from one context to another and how the conduits are kind of you know how transmission is happening that would be like an explosive study to kind of make people realize that mm-hmm. the shame in seeking testing and in seeking treatment is is a lot to do with the fact that it's a stigma is considered a stigmatizing disease of poverty with with hiv it's more of the stigma associated with sexual behaviors mm-hmm. and that kind of sexual behaviors ties in the promiscuity and that kind of in the society is considered um you know shameful and and people don't we need a sex positive revolution yes we need a sexual pleasure and sex positive revolution for sexual health and rights i'm working on a piece right now on that and the world association of sexual health made a declaration on sexual pleasure there's you know a lot of people saying that sexual health sexual rights and sexual pleasures are are interconnected yet we still live in a society where yeah we're not sex positive right so ah oh, we're so far talk about the society i come from if i tell them i i love to talk openly about sexuality and how it impacts you know care and all that just the fact that the land of kama sutra doesn't want to talk about the the, the reason why from you know a few millions they are 1.4 billion the the prominent reason why we grew from a few million in the 1940s to 1.4 billion is the three letter word yeah but you also brought up a really interesting point which is that historically pre-colonization pre-christianity it seemed like there is a lot of um more openness you know in the kama sutra and in in uh, carvings I, i did my phd work in tamil nadu and there was a lot of interesting temples with yep you know with with yep people yep having sex <laughs> and various combinations and you're like wow there was this real open Kajuraho is the seat you have to go there to the temple. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and and so there was this sort of you know openness an openness um even you know I worked with uh gay gay men that was my my PhD work was on um with the Indian network of people with HIV and SWAM yeah. and Sahodaran and Lotus and Kumbakonam and and Chennai. Yes. yes. And we looked at different yeah, kinds of stigma yeah, yeah. but also like resistance to stigma yeah. and the impacts um on on mental health and there was an a group a transgender group uh I work with Kalki and another transgender group mm. and they had a person I'm I'm missing the word right now that they worshiped yeah. that was a trans a goddess or god a goddess and yes yes trans goddess yes they have one yeah for like once half male and half ardhanarishwar yeah Half male, half female, and they dressed yeah. up as this goddess for a celebration. And there is a 
particular deity they worship yeah and it's part of the culture mm-hmm. so the problem is that this has been a part of the culture but um but you know so the problem in india is so even women you either raise them to, to the status of goddesses <laughs> or you just treat them as slaves and most people don't treat them so when you treat them as equals there a lot there's a lot of education of men and evolution of men so one of the reasons why i had a father and a grandfather that were more evolved and liberated and like you know and you probably have have a similar experience where they are evolved and liberated because they don't necessarily view women in the way most men do view women right so so that requires a lot of um, self reflection self awareness understanding and also translating that power structure at home so 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 the problem with many of the politicians who say oh no we don't have any gender equity issues we gave power to women and all that in the homes you see the power equation being panned out you know mm-hmm. and that affects everything it affects sexual decision making it affects mm-hmm. when are you when how are you going to time your child you know how whether you're going to do family planning or not you know all of those they they trans, they intersect so badly so 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 i also feel that to, to really we keep talking about gender equity gender equity but i think we need to actually talk about education of of men and we need these evolved men if the world was full of evolved men who actually really respected women and they the world is full of them there are lots of them there's there's a he for a she you know that like there was a father and a grandfather and i have a husband who who believes in gender equity so you know if you if the world is full of people like them and if we can clone them then i think that that's where we that, that's when gender equity is likely to happen mm-hmm. but i've seen homes where women are not you know if they, if they are educated they're not allowed to work if they if they work they give up their savings or their salaries i mean the, the, the power imbalance is so drastic how are you going to talk about gender equity forget about self care and you know reproductive rights and all that that's fundamentally flawed i find this a lot of rhetorical you know it's very political and it's very re- deeply rooted in rhetoric I I totally agree and I think it's a global issue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've been surprised by the dialogue which is super heteronormative and rooted in gender inequities around COVID-19 <laughs> in Canada, the US, Europe. It's all about women doing more work in the home, women raising kids and and I'm not saying that that's not true, but I'm like, wow. you know really how far have we come in 2021 if this is the only dialogue women only exist in covid in relationship to their children and their relationship with male partners which is really it's it's really interesting and and i i i'm just really surprised that yeah. that that is the main dialogue you know that that there's still this i, I mean i don't know why i'm surprised i mean i see it all, everywhere <laughs> I have a neighbor who's worked in the women's movement and she she's an educationist and 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 so I asked her you know what do you think how many years she you know her thought was that it's it's basically you know men need to be more evolved in their thought process and and that's where you find you know when men deeply believe and believe in sharing power so the problem with the world today is that power is is only in the hands of a few people mm-hmm. and most of them are white men <laughs> and so they need to just give give away that power they need to come to the point where they have to say okay we've had it for a while and now i think it's time to relinquish it and to just 
let other people lead it that takes a very evolved person to step down from that role and to still feel that he or she is going to be um influential in this space right and they haven't even shared it with white women right they haven't shared it with white women either so so it's it's so much of that education that we need to do and that that transcends so when you're talking about patriarchy for example in my culture you know the the men and even the male physicians sometimes they don't even see that there is a need for like 50% female physicians to be on the panel mm-hmm. it's almost like i have to kind of make an effort and it's it's hard for them to take uh, like prescriptions from a female like me if i try to prescribe to a senior male physician i hit into that patriarchy and i love it i love it i'm like here's my moment i love it <laughs> now i i'm really happy you brought up this up because you know i'm thinking we haven't talked enough about this on the podcast which is around the need for like transformative approaches to gender Absolutely. you know the the transformative gender education approach which is like yes. gender does not equal man it and other genders absolutely gender involves yes. um women men gender gender diverse non-binary trans folks and that transforming gender relationships by blowing up patriarchy is going to benefit all those men who don't want to get tested or or men who are gay bisexual men and 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 just even straight men are going to be liberated by not being confined by why these gendered roles and expectations absolutely absolutely and there's so many men who want to contribute to to the you know to the house care and the housekeeping but they need to have that support totally right they need mm-hmm. there's so many so many nurturing yep. souls like you know i have been benefited by a very nurturing father so i know like a professional and of like you know there are some men who are very very involved in their careers and they don't have time for their kids but there are some who carve out time for their kids you know so there are so many of 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 those kinds of men and they are there everywhere and you should not look at it through a prism of gendered roles right and this and this man so i wasn't just talking about men and women i, I i'm just saying that you know if men haven't even shared it with women forget about you know going beyond that spectrum to include everybody so inclusiveness is become a mantra you know equity diversity inclusion has become a mantra like okay i understand it's important get down to get down to the basics what does it really mean to include that means you get rid of the stigma yeah the elephant in the room is your judgment mm-hmm. that people like them be different from us i mean i've worked in hiv so i you know i've been always i am a very open individual so i have no issues about encouraging and you probably also you know you have no issues about engaging with people but there are people who have major issues about engagement so it it talks about so the last point i really wanted to make was you know you okay good cuz we have we only have a couple minutes before i do the wild cards yeah. i need the wild yeah. cards with you <laughs> okay so like you know you had this question about how do the how can the listeners be a part of the solution yes yes I want you to tell us. So tell so us. the listeners can certainly educate themselves because awareness is the key to change. And if it's it really you know you don't understand COVID-19 unless somebody in your close network gets affected by it. So listen to the friend stories of your friends, family and members who are affected by any of these conditions that makes you empathize and understand it even more and it would not be judgmental it would be born out of what I really want to bring about here is empathy. Mm. The world is not exercising 
having enough empathy exercise empathy rather than judgment love the person unconditionally that's all they need you know use gentle words um and the love love and acceptance that you give they are the best antidote to do all the stigmatizing things that people are receiving on the planet because i think that being human is what we are talking about you have to learn to be human mm-hmm. and use love and acceptance compassion understanding those are the things that are really lacking in the society today um look at as buddha says genuine compassion or karuna is or tugye that they call needs wisdom and loving kindness mm. and that's that's the philosophy and as dalai lama says that more fundamental than religion is our basic human spirituality we all have a disposition human disposition towards love kindness and affection irrespective of whether we have a religious framework or not when we nurture this most basic resource we set about cultivating our basic inner values that we appreciate in others and then we start living spiritually so we all need to be you know be human be spiritual think about behind that a hand that you're trying to fix or the test that you're trying to prescribe is a human being navigating a life circumstance that you and I really you know we never know in great detail what their life journeys are we've got to just trip that and engage with them at a human level and that's when you know true kind of solutions emerge that's when you know change happens and that's where you know people become advocates for change i am so loving this it's so funny i i just finished writing a book that's in press now and i interviewed people saying so i will never do that again um <laughs> i'm to be done so i interviewed people <laughs> I interviewed people across projects like HIV projects um in where in Jamaica in Eswatini in the Northwest Territories in Toronto and in Haiti and I, I the book is challenging the idea that people are hard to reach and so I interviewed like co-PIs co-principal investigators for the study about different topics and one of them was around the beloved community critical hope so each chapter is about a different topic and i was said what is your recommendations to other researchers you know working with these communities transgender folks uh, lesbian gay bisexual folks internally displaced folks um people living with hiv all this indigenous um youth in the northwest territories every single person said what you just said which is the common humanity that that's so amazing this person is has the same goals love life has the same yeah humanity and and if we could only see that you know the what i was always moved by the saying in india i honor that in you which is the same in me or i honor the divine in you that's a divine yeah. in me it's yeah. so beautiful it's recognizing that yeah. there's a thread yeah. that you know connects us right absolutely Yes, yes. And this is also you are that. You are a part of the cosmos. You are a part of the consciousness. So a part of you, you're at the end of the day you're going to dissolve into that mm-hmm. you know that whole conglomerate of souls that exists. It's called it's captured in that three beautiful words tatvam asi. And uh, I mean I just feel that if people could just just be loving and kind, I think they will get more solutions. Their research will be more impactful. Their practices will be more impactful. They will focus on, you know, the human rather than, you know, maybe the bottom line. <laughs> 
<laughs> if I can use the word. And, and also they will devise things that are going to be uh, more patient friendly. I mean, right now, the way systems are devised and ha- devised health systems in all the four contexts that I've worked, mm-hmm. they are not patient friendly. They are not participant friendly. They are just, uh, they are just navigating them is a huge nightmare. Yeah. Whether it's a Canada, whether it's a United States, whether it's a South Africa, yeah. whether it's an India, it's the same story, same story, different players, different power dynamics. And I, and I love disrupting all of that. So that's, oh my gosh, it's so, I'm so excited to know you now. Okay, we have a couple of minutes yes. left. I want, okay, are you no, ready for this? more. <laughs> are you ready for the wild card? Oh, yes. This is, okay. this is when they get to know the you, okay. the real you. Oh. Okay? Okay. All right. First one, they're really fast, really quick. What are you watching on Netflix or Hulu or Crave or? Oh, I, I just finished Bombay Begums, which is incredibly. I've never heard of it. Yeah, you have to watch it. It's a okay. new one. What it's, is it about? I never watched. I never watched any Bollywood when I was in India. I was watching Hollywood, but but when I moved out of India, I'm only on Bollywood. So oh, that's Bollywood crazy. is so fun. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But this is a this is a series on Netflix. It talks about four female protagonists and how they navigate their lives. It's it's oh. cool. Oh, cool. Just season okay. one. I, okay, great. I'm gonna I'm gonna look at that. <laughs> okay, my next question is: You can go anywhere in the world right now for dinner. Pretend there's no COVID. Where do you go and who do you take? Okay, it'll be uh, under the stars with the ocean under my mm-hmm. feet. It'll be Montego Bay in Jamaica. Oh, nice. When I have the best meal of my life, I think I'm forgetting the name of the restaurant, but it was in Montego Bay. You have to it tell me where because I work there. Oh, I'll have to tell you. It's it's. I'll let you yeah. know. I always forget names, so it was the you could feel the ocean and the and the the you know the fish, all of them you could see, and then there was the stars, and that was the lap. Oh. It was just the most incredible. Or it will be the Rick's Cafe in Negril in Jamaica. Nice. Okay, this is great. You haven't been to Rick's Cafe? No, I I oh just work so much when I'm there that I'm like, you know, because we have we have three, we work in a clinic with sites yeah. in Mobe, Ocean. You got to take time out I to know. discharge and go to the Rick's Cafe. It's at the edge of a cliff and it's just like it has all, it has the ocean everywhere and it's just got the most you know amazing what? locale. I like dining at these places, crazy ones. Do you want to know, I have not been to Negril since I started doing the work in 2013 because I'm, it's too far from Montego Bay and I'm like, but I, you know, I need to, I need to build that in. And who would you take? Who would I take? I would take my daughter because she loves, she is such a good man. Um, she can decode flavors and she loves food. And of course, if my daughter's coming with me, my husband has to come. So (laughs) (laughs) amazing. Okay. When you go there next, I want to say my last question is there, and you've already shared so much. So there's nothing left. <laughs> you know, I, I feel like the the list, <laughs> I highly doubt that. Um, the listeners are already going away with so much wisdom. But if there was one last thought, advice, and you've shared a lot, but if there's any last piece of advice or wisdom that you'd love to leave that helped you. Absolutely. Thank you. I mean, all the listeners, each one of them, and I say this time and again, each one of them have the power to influence the life of at least one or five people. 
um, not just in their microcosm and their family space, but also outside of their space if they are privileged. So I would encourage all of them to use their power to be the change. Because if we take care of five more people, we will make life a better place. So in whichever way you want to influence, like we do it through mentoring, we do it through social service, we do it through research, through social impact and all that. But I think every individual who's privileged, if they take care of five more individuals, we, the world will be a better place automatically. We won't need anyone. You are so amazing. How lucky are we to have you as a guest? Thank, thank you, you so much for coming on today. Be the change. Be the change. Thank I you. Thank, thank you so you. much. Thank you. Thanks for the opportunity. It was lovely talking to you. So I hope we chat up again and we have coffee when you come to Montreal. Please, I can't wait. Thank you so yeah. much. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Everybody Hates Me, Let's Talk About Stigma, a podcast hosted by Dr. Carmen Logie. Join us next week for more inspiring and motivating conversations with stigma leaders from around the world.